0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled Living Wisely. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. When was the last time you saw a Hollywood movie without a sex scene in it? It's probably been a while. This is because the amount of sex in movies and who's having it has become unreal. So unreal that a couple of researchers decided to prove it. Several years ago researchers from the University of North Texas set out to prove that the type of sex shown in today's Hollywood movies does not represent reality. John Mark Dempsey from the research team says, quote, the existence of sex between married people is almost completely non-existent in today's movies. Dempsey and co-researcher Tom Reichart tracked every sex scene for an entire year in the top 25 movies. And they found that more than 85% of sex in Hollywood movies is between unmarried people. Dempsey argues that this does not reflect people's experiences because he cites an earlier study done by the University of Chicago that revealed married couples enjoy more frequent and more satisfying sex than singles do. Dempsey goes on to say, when movie makers are criticized for portraying sex and violence, they sometimes claim they are only portraying reality. But when it comes to married people, they aren't being realistic. If the movies were more realistic, it might be helpful to give people a better attitude towards marriage and a better feeling about their own marriage. So why doesn't Hollywood show us more what physical intimacy looks like in a healthy marriage? Well, media psychologist Stuart Fishkoff from... California State University says that screenwriters gravitate towards unmarried sex because, quote, it's much more exciting to watch people who don't know each other have sex than people who have known each other for a long time. How sad, but true. You need to know that entertainment is the Trojan horse... Satan uses to make us think unbiblically about things God has made. He uses entertainment to weaken our defenses and then inserts the lies that he wants us to believe. This is one reason why I felt compelled to preach a message on marriage and sex before we wrap up this series in Proverbs And another reason is that Solomon and the rest of God's Word has a lot to say about this topic. And so we're landing our series in the book of Proverbs today called Living Wisely. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Proverbs chapter 5. And grab that uh, sermon note insert that's in your worship folder. And to take notes this morning using the keynote screen behind me. It'll help you follow along and remember some of the things that we're learning in God's Word today. Our theme verse for this series has been Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Let's uh, read it out loud together. Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We've been learning throughout this series this summer that Uh, Wisdom is the skillful application of God's Word to every area of life for His glory and our good. Throughout this series, one of the wisest men that ever lived and ever walked on this earth has been telling us one simple truth in several different ways. And that is that wisdom reaps blessings, but foolishness reaps cursing. Or another way we could put it is failing to skillfully apply God's word, to actually do it in every area of our lives only leads to more pain and regret. This is why Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 35 to 36. I've got these verses underlined in like big circles around, around them because I've made this mistake in my life so many times. Solomon says, For whoever finds wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. Oh, I have done that so many times. Of course, the verse raises the question, why would you want to injure yourself? Unfortunately, one area many people have injured themselves is in the area of sexual intimacy, As I said a few minutes ago, Solomon has a lot to say about this subject, but here's my best attempt to distill it down into one single sentence called the big idea. And it's this. Sex refreshes inside marriage, but causes regrets outside marriage. Sex refreshes inside marriage, but causes regrets outside of marriage. Proverbs chapter 5 is one of many passages in the scriptures that prove God is in favor of sex. This is one of the many lies that the adversary tries to tell us is that God doesn't want you having sex. No, actually, he does inside marriage. And you'll see that in a few minutes. Here in Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon uses some of Some very powerful imagery, if not graphic imagery, to instruct his sons about the delight of sex inside marriage, and then he warns them about the dangers of sex outside marriage. And so with that, if you would, look at Proverbs chapter 5, starting with verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad in streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Here's point number one in your outline. The first truth that Solomon is telling us about marital intimacy is that marital intimacy was created to be exclusive. It was created to be exclusive. The dictionary defines exclusive as Excluding or refusing admittance. Limiting access to a particular person or persons. The Lord created marital intimacy to be exclusive because he knew that making it available to everyone would dilute and diminish its purpose. And so Solomon says to his sons in verse 15, drink water, it's a metaphor for sex. Like water, the Lord made marital intimacy to satisfy and keep our marriages refreshed. He says then, drink it from your own cistern, not somebody else's. A cistern is a cup or a mug used in the ancient Middle East. It was considered back in those days poor manners to drink water out of somebody else's cup. And then he says, just in case... His sons didn't get the point about the mug. He says, drink drink it out of your own well. He uses another container, if not a producer of water. When Solomon wrote these words, he's using private and public imagery on purpose. Back in his day, like there are in some communities today, a person could get water from their own well, and then there were... Uh, public wells in the community, maybe downtown, for example, but it was considered stealing to take water from your neighbor's well without their permission. Thus, he's using the etiquette practiced within the community regarding public versus private property to make the parallel point that don't don't. Hear, basically, this is what he's saying to his sons: just as. You would not take water from your neighbor's well. Don't have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife or daughter because they don't belong to you. Just like the water in their well doesn't belong to you. So marital intimacy was created to be exclusive. That's the first thing he wants to tell us today, and he's telling his sons exclusivity is a good thing. We tend not to like it when we're excluded or on the outside, though, right? We don't mind it if we're the ones inside the club or the country club, for example. But sometimes exclusivity protects us from harm. Take, for example, fire. Fire was made by God to be good, to give us heat, light, a means to cook, etc. When it's contained in a fireplace, fire is helpful But, when it's turned loose in a forest, say by an arsonist, as we've seen in the news recently, and the fire is out of control and has no containment, it's harmful and it does lots of damage. And so it is with sex. Sex refreshes inside marriage but causes regrets outside marriage. Let's look back at the text again in verses 18 and 19. He now transitions and says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Here's number two on your outline. The second truth that Solomon tells us about marital intimacy is that it was designed to be enjoyed. It was designed to be enjoyed. The phrase, may your fountain be blessed, is another way to say, may your sexual desires be blessed or be granted by God or satisfied by God through your wife. And then he says, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. In the original text, it means to take sexual pleasure in your first wife, the woman you married, man, when you were young, to stay with her to be faithful to her, to not run off to some other woman or women. And then he says, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, although comparing a wife to an animal in our culture today would be perceived as an insult, in Solomon's day it was actually a compliment. I know that's hard to wrap our minds around, but just trust me on this. I researched it in reliable commentaries. This is not on the internet. In those days, women were commonly named after or compared to beautiful, graceful animals. And so, uh, again, it was a compliment and meant to be a good thing. Next he says, be intoxicated always in her love. Some translations render this captivated. That's not the best rendering, uh, because the word that Solomon uses in the original language actually describes a husband who has had so much sanctified sex that his gait staggers. I'm telling you the truth. It's in the Hebrew exegesis. He staggers like he has had too much alcohol to drink. That's what Solomon was telling his sons. So marital intimacy was designed to be enjoyed, and that's why sex refreshes inside marriage but causes regrets outside of marriage. Look at the text again. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. He then poses a rhetorical question to his sons. Why should you be intoxicated? Note the use of that word again. Why should be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Here's the third truth, number three in your outline marital infidelity will be exposed. Marital infidelity will be exposed. A man's ways or woman's ways are before. That's a key key word there in the text. I have that circled or squared off. Before the eyes of the Lord, not behind the eyes of the Lord, not off to the side in his peripheral vision, right in front of the Lord. Everything you do can be seen. You can't hide what you're doing. And so Solomon is in essence answering the question in verse 21 that he proposed in verse 20. He says to his sons, why should you avoid sleeping with another woman? Because the Lord will see it. It doesn't matter where you go on earth or how dark it is or what time of day. The Lord will see it. One need only look at the evening news for examples of people who thought they could get away with their infidelity, only to see it come back to bite them. Take, for example, Bobby Petrino. He was, up until a couple of years ago, a middle-aged married father and former University of Arkansas football coach, who was ousted After he lied about the 25 year old mistress and intern who was riding on the back of his motorcycle before it crashed. The truth came out. Then there was John Edwards, the former Democratic presidential candidate whose mistress had a baby out of wedlock while his own wife was dying of cancer. It came out in the light. And then sadly, we've seen a lot of news in the past year about Bill Cosby, the once wholesome actor and comedian known as America's dad, who got away for a while with sexually assaulting more than four dozen women for more than four decades, until they all started coming forward in the sunset of his career. Tragic. Now, if you would, keep your finger in Proverbs chapter 5 and flip over to Proverbs 6, chapter 6. I want to show you an important cross-reference. Solomon spends a lot of time talking about adultery. Obviously, it was a problem back then, just like it is now. If you would, look at Proverbs 6, verses 27 to 29. He says, Can a man carry fire? next to his chest, in his clothes, not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Here the sage gives two rhetorical questions which are intended to solicit the obvious answer of No, from the reader. He then uses the illustration of fire and hot coals to basically say in verse 29, it's impossible to avoid getting burnt when you play around with sex outside of marriage. Well, yeah, but maybe I could find some way. I bet I could outsmart everybody else in world history that's tried. Solomon says, no, you can't. You can't. So he creates a scenario like, would you try to walk across hot coals and not get your feet burned? No, obviously you can't do that. Would you you put burning coals on your lap and not get burned? No, obviously you can't do that. Thus, therefore, the conclusion logically is you cannot play with sex outside of marriage and not get burned. Don't do it, he says. Next, skip down to verses 32 and 33. He who commits or she adultery lacks sense. Here's what it says in the Hebrew text. It's stupid. (laughs) He who does it destroys himself. He or she will get wounds in dishonor and his disgrace or her disgrace will not be wiped away. Just in case his sons or we as the readers think that somehow we can still get away with committing adultery without getting burned, Solomon decides to fast forward the proverbial time machine in order to say, you will get burnt, you will injure yourself, you will hurt others. You will regret your impulsive decision the rest of your life. The consequences of adultery are a bullet that cannot be dodged. Now, I know what you might be wondering. Doesn't God forgive any sin if we repent? Sure, absolutely. The Lord extends grace to those who will admit their sin and repent and turn back to him and commit to a life of purity through grace and faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But the Lord does allow consequences to play themselves out. And he does it so we will learn to never do that again. So there is forgiveness, that's one thing, but the Lord does allow the consequences for sin to still happen. Now, although the Lord holds each of us individually accountable or responsible for our sin, I have observed over the years that Satan uses at least three lies to bait us into sin. And so here's letters A, B, and C on your outline. Letter A, the first lie that Satan tells us is, this sin will make you feel better. This sin will make you feel better. Although God's word says that some sin is pleasurable, in the end, it always leaves us unsatisfied. Sin never has, nor ever will, be able to satisfy the hole in our hearts that only Jesus Christ can fill. Those who have a Faith that is not rooted, whose faith is not rooted in the Word of God, those who are led by their emotions or deeply discouraged or maybe suffering from chronic pain seem to be exceptionally vulnerable to this lie because Satan plays on their desire to have some relief. So he says, This sin will make you feel better. Just do this. But it's a lie. The second lie that Satan tells us about our sin is, letter B, no one will see you. We've already kind of talked about this in Proverbs 5, but one of the many reasons this is a lie is that it states something about God that's not true. It assumes that God is limited in his vision or his knowledge. But one of the many words that theologians use to describe the character of God is the word omniscience. It means all-knowing. It's a fancy word that means he sees all things, knows all things. He knows what you did last week, last year, two decades ago, and he knows what you will do. This is comforting when we're struggling or when we're suffering, but it also provides accountability when we're tempted to sin. It means that the Lord knows everything we think, everything we say or do, even in the dark. Thus, because the Lord hates sin but loves us, he will always bring our sin into the light so that we deal with it. It may be today, he may bring it into the light tomorrow, it may be 30, 40 years from now. Satan loves to tell us though, no one will see you do this sin. But what he isn't telling you and I is that God will, God will see it. So, the second lie that Satan tells us about our sins is that no one will see you. The third lie is let us see there won't be any consequences. There won't be any consequences. The adversary knows that our fallenness not only makes us susceptible to sin, but also gullible. Thus, biblically illiterate believers will not have the numerous examples throughout the Scriptures of people reaping consequences for their sin. But those who do study the Scriptures regularly are aware of that pattern throughout history of people reaping consequences, and they are able then to inoculate themselves against this lie from the enemy. This is why I think someone once said, uh, and I, I wish I knew who said this, but uh, I, I read this somewhere, sin wouldn't be so attractive if the wages were paid immediately. Now, with the remainder of the time that we have left, I'd like to share some applications and because fairness is very important in my house and my kids love to remind me when things seem unfair I'm assuming you want things fair in the church too so I decided to do two for the husbands and two for the wives I hope that's fair I don't want to hear any complaining after the service I don't know, it seems like the ones for the wives were harder Anyway, turn to, if you would, with me, uh, to to turn with me, excuse me, if you would, to chapter 7, Proverbs 7, 18 to 19. Uh, I share applications in my messages because walking by faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Thus, when we don't apply the word or talk about how it applies, we are not walking by faith. And so, look at Proverbs 7, verses 18 to 19. This is, uh, well, I'll explain it here in just a second. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and a full moon, he will come home. Here's uh, number one, application number one for husbands. Don't make your work an idol. Don't make your work an idol. The sage maximizes the impact of his counsel to his sons by writing Proverbs chapter 7 in the first person from the perspective of an adulterous woman. So a sizable chunk of this chapter, chapter 7, is an adulteress seducing a naive man into her bed. And one of the things that makes the seduction possible, as we see in verses 18 and 19, is that her husband is gone on a long work-related journey. Some might try to say that absence makes the heart grow fonder. But when it comes to marriage, God's word says absence makes the heart more prone to wander. Men, if you have to take a pay cut to get off the road for the sake of your marriage, then I would urge you to do that. Because changing your standard of living will always be easier than trying to rebuild your marriage after an adulterous relationship has taken place. And I say this because I've talked with men over the years that uh, justify taking this job or that job or keeping a job that pays better so they can have nicer things. But that job takes them away from home as well. So thus, they're out on the road staying in hotels and more susceptible to temptation. And the wife is at home alone, also more vulnerable. And what I'm saying is, ask the Lord to provide, do your best And see if he will provide a job that allows you to be at home more. And if not, if that's just not possible, then you have to be very proactive and put protections in place, accountability and other things like that, to guard yourself. Next, if you would, turn to Proverbs 31. For our second husband application, Proverbs 31. Verses 28 and 29. Many of you know that Proverbs 31 describes a a woman, a godly woman, who takes care of her home and runs a little side business and raises the kids. And she's so good at many things that her husband has an increasing standing in the community. Well, in verses 28, 29 of Proverbs 31, it says, Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. In fact, he says, Many have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Here's the second application for husbands. Encourage and affirm your wife. Encourage and affirm your wife. Proverbs 31 is a popular passage used by women's ministries, books, and Bible studies to describe the role of the wife at home. But what's not clear in the text is is this. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Or in this case, was the Proverbs 31 woman praised because of what she did or was she able to do all the things described in this chapter because she was affirmed by her family? Men, I would say, just want to encourage you that if you're struggling to find things you can affirm in your wife, I would suggest by starting to focus on the things that she's definitely better at than you. Just start asking yourself honestly and humbly, what is she better at than I am? And if you're not sure, ask your kids. They'll tell you. <laughs> or grandkids. They'll give you an honest answer. They might even say, How much time do you have, Dad? <laughs> Next, now we have two for the wives. All of a sudden, all the men picked up their pens and started, oh, I'm Gonna write this down. No, you're supposed to write your own applications down, okay? Um, and don't bring these out in your next flight. The pastor said you're supposed to, and you're not. Here it is right here. Don't be doing that. I've tried that before. It doesn't work very well. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So here's application 3 the wives, publicly praise your husband instead of publicly criticizing him. can't tell you how many times I have winced at a church event or at dinner or after a service because a wife was running her mouth and putting her husband down in front of everybody, embarrassing him and just, just going, oh my God, feel for the poor guy. Solomon, in this contrasting proverb, compares two different women. The wife in the first half of the verse is called excellent or noble, as it says in some translations. The Hebrew word that's used here means virtuous. It means that she is of such godly character that she not only increases her husband's standing in the community, she's a crown, notice the use of that word, but she also would never think of embarrassing him publicly. She she has the wisdom and the discernment to know that if there's an issue with her husband, it's best and wisest and most honoring to the Lord to handle that privately. In contrast, the second half of the verse Describes a woman who is the opposite. She brings shame to her husband because of her poor character and critical spirit, so much so that it slowly drains his strength from the inside out, like rottenness in his bones, and it decreases his standing in the community. So wives, publicly praise your husband. And if you have an issue or concern that's a a pattern that you want to address, do it in private. Don't, Don't try to leverage shame and embarrassing him in public to get him to change. It doesn't work. Here's application four. Wives, avoid foolish arguments. If you would turn to Proverbs 25. For our last proverbs this morning, last proverb, Proverbs 25, verse 24. Wives avoid foolish arguments. We get this from Proverbs 25, verse 24, where Solomon writes, It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. This comparison proverb describes a condition in the first half of the verse that doesn't sound pleasant until you read the second half of the verse. So thus, if you just put your hand and you were to cover up the second half of the verse, like, it's better to live in the corner of a housetop? What? Really? And then when you look at the second half, oh, 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 I see. It's because his wife is constantly quarreling with him. Oh, wow. It must be pretty bad downstairs in the home. Now, a corner of the housetop brings to mind images of a man sitting on hot shingles out in the elements. However, some commentators, uh, and that's what I obviously always thought. I always pictured a man sitting on the corner next to the gutter, as far away from his wife as he could get without falling off the roof. In the pouring rain, thunderstorms going. On. I have always kind of pictured that. But what I learned in my studies this week is that a few very reputable commentators believe this phrase actually describes a guest room on the roof of the family home. Such a thing was common in the ancient Middle East. Now, ladies, before your mind starts going here, although your husband may sometimes deserve a time out in the guest room, and the guest room is not as bad as being on the roof in the heat of a desert summer, And maybe you would prefer that for him. Please don't miss what the sage is saying here. This husband would rather be cramped and lonely than have another fight with his wife. The Hebrew word... That's translated quarrelsome, the adjective there describing the wife in the second half of the verse. The Hebrew word's an interesting word. It means contentious or a brawler. Ladies, let me just say in love, if this is something you struggle with, I'd like to encourage you to pick your battles wisely and to prioritize having a healthy marriage over winning the war. Because you could win the war, but damage your marriage, or maybe even lose it. So, avoid foolish arguments. Well, many Christ followers have at least heard of Martin Luther. He was the Protestant, he started the Protestant Reformation, by nailing his 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany, in 1517. However, what many people do not know about Luther is that he had a marriage that was what I would call sweet and spicy. (laughs) Luther was so consumed with his preaching and teaching ministry in his early adult life that many of his friends believed he would never marry and they believed he didn't even want to get married. But this changed in Luther's late 30s when he arranged for a 25-year-old nun named Catherine to stay with some friends of his after she escaped from a Catholic convent. They became friends, but neither could imagine the other being anything more than that. Uh, He thought she was too feisty, and she thought he was too prideful. Luther even tried to set her up with one of his 60-year-old colleagues at the seminary. Keep in mind, she was 25. But that didn't work, she wasn't interested. Historians aren't sure how it happened or what changed, but on June 13th, 1523, Martin Luther and Catherine von Bora were married. Their years together were not easy, but rather difficult. Historians uh, write in various books and blogs that Luther received death threats for rebelling against the established Catholic Church and leading the Protestant Reformation. He also had debilitating health issues that left him bedridden many times. He mentored students in his home, and they adopted four children and they had a farm to take care of. Oh, and I f- forgot to mention, the four adopted kids were in addition to the seven kids they had naturally. <laughs> now, as I mentioned a moment ago, their marriage was, I use the term, sweet and spicy, because, uh, well, for example, one day when Luther was depressed and despairing about his own ministry and his health issues, Katie decided to put on a black dress for the day. And when her husband asked, are you going to a funeral? She replied, no, but since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in your mourning. <laughs> that, is a, that is just a sliver of the many, many spirited quotes I found about their marriage. <laughs> and I'm being serious. It, it, I, I read some fascinating articles last night about their marriage. But Luther was not only a prolific writer, he also kept a journal for most of his life in which he recorded his personal thoughts on everything from marriage to parenting. And again, they they had a very difficult life together, but they loved each other very deeply. Things weren't always rosy, and they struggled. In one journal entry uh, recorded in the early years of their marriage, he shared this insight. The first love is drunken. When the intoxication intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. Now, obviously, he was referring to that chapter that all couples transition to when the warm fuzzies wear off, and you are now in a marriage covenant that you have to apply with someone who leaves their toothpaste in the sink, or... uh, doesn't rinse off their dishes, or maybe snores. However, perhaps the most famous quote on marriage that Luther ever recorded is one that I first heard way back when I was in college, and I never forgot it. He writes, "'Let the wife make the husband glad to come home, "'and let him make her sorry to see him leave.'" Sex refreshes inside a marriage but causes regrets outside of marriage. Would you join me as we close in prayer? (laughs) Heavenly Father, I realize that a topic like this hits differently depending on where people are. Lord, you know that there are Students here listening today that because of their inexperience, they're struggling to, they just, they still don't understand some of the things that are being talked about here. I just ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would sear these truths on their hearts so they would not forget them. Make them wise beyond their years, Lord. Still, there may be others that are single here today that want to be married, but for reasons that we don't understand and they don't understand, they haven't found that that person, that match yet, Mr. or Mrs. Wright. Lord, please, would you provide that person in just the right time, but in the meantime, would you prepare them? Would you work in their hearts and in their lives so that you are their first love, forever, so that even a a husband or a wife cannot replace you as number one in their hearts. Still, Lord, there may be others here that have been betrayed or have experienced the pain of adultery. Perhaps they were cheated on, or perhaps they were the cheater. Father, please, would you bring healing and restorations after there's genuine repentance? Would you please, Lord, fulfill the many promises that you give in the scriptures that you, would, you will bring good, that you work all things together for good for those who love you. And, and we know, Lord, that includes you bringing good out of our sin that you are able to redeem and use our sin to bring good. It's just one of the many examples of your great power. Father, I know also there may be some here today that are caught in sexual sin. Would you please, Lord, help them to get free from that? Give them wisdom. Give them the courage to ask for help. If they don't know Jesus, Lord, bring them to Jesus. Because we know from Romans 6 that anyone who's trusted in Christ and has been born again is no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ. And thus they have the power to say no to sin if they know Jesus. Finally, Lord, would you help us to be a church whose purity is only outmatched by yours. Would you help us, Lord, to be a church that is able to tell the outside world that sex is good, but it's made for marriage, and you're in favor of it. Would you help us, Lord, to be a church that models what it looks like to have a Christ-centered marriage and how much better that is than the kind of marriage the world offers. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.